The information provided on this podcast does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. Instead, all information, content, and materials available are for general informational purposes only. Welcome to Rights Here, Rights Now, the podcast about disability, advocacy, and activism. I'm your advocate host, Molly Carter. And I'm your advocate host, Suzanne Herbst. Every two weeks, we dig into relevant issues, current events, and avenues for self-advocacy. Because someone has to. And it might as well be us. This podcast is produced by the Disability Law Center of Virginia, the Commonwealth's Protection and Advocacy Agency for Disability Rights. Find out more at dlcv.org. Well, I'm very excited for our guest today, Suzanne. Me too. We have got Chris Miller from Brain Injury Services Coordination Unit at DARS, and she is so knowledgeable and also just a delight to talk to, I think. Yes, absolutely. And she actually um, is already connected to one of our advocates here, um, Elizabeth Horn. So we um, are lucky enough to um, sort of already like have her in our circle, and we are just so excited to hear um, and dive more into depth about what she does. Absolutely. So before we jump in, let's check out disability in the news. Due to the shortage of housing options for those with developmental disabilities, new housing communities are popping up all across the country. A new project known as Crossbridge Point outside of Indianapolis, Indiana is currently being built. The community will be on 15 acres and will offer homes for those with or without disabilities. The project is set to open in 2023 and will include various size homes as well as a community center and will feature clubs and classes for promoting independent living skills. This community will allow families to purchase homes but also will have homes for rent. The nonprofit funding this project, ILADD Inc., has learned that families really value being able to purchase homes so tenants can feel secure in their housing and not worry about being at the mercy of a landlord. Owning a house also allows for more specific accommodations or modifications and helps owners build equity. There are other communities similar to this in Arizona, Texas, Wisconsin, and Missouri that all offer a similar style of community living. It is so great to see those communities rise up all over the U.S. when the need for them is so high. Thank you so much for being with us today, Chris. We are so excited to have you. My pleasure. Thank you. So let's get started. So tell us a little bit, what is the Brain Injury Services Coordination Unit at DARS? Okay. Um, So DARS, the Department of Aging uh, and Rehabilitative Services, um, by its name, obviously includes services for older adults and their families. Um, We also are, uh, provide folk rehab services for uh, people with disabilities. And uh, within all that, there is a department called the Department for um, Community Living. Um, And that is to provide community-based supports for Um, folks with disabilities. And then within that, there is a unit that is specific to uh, brain injury services. Uh, The General Assembly has designated DARS as the lead agency on brain injury. And that means that we direct and oversee just about $6 million in funding from the state. Um, We pass that along to, to nine providers across the Commonwealth who serve people with brain injury. 
We also provide grants uh, for brain injury services and research through um, the Commonwealth Neurotrauma Initiative, or the CNI. Uh, a board appointed by the governor puts out RFPs from this funding, which comes from uh, a trust fund of fees from DMV that they set aside specifically for us for this. Um, the Brain Injury Unit also administers a federal grant. Can't be used for direct services, but really it's used, um, and I, this might uh, speak to the heart of uh, uh, the Disability Law Center folks, uh, those funds are used, those federal grant funds are used to address systems change that improves access to services for brain injury survivors. Right now in our federal grant, we're working on the intersection of brain injury and substance use disorder and, uh, and our mental illness. Uh, we're working on really um, amplifying the voices of people with brain injury uh, in all areas of service delivery and, and government. Uh, we're focusing on support for caregivers, and we're working on trying to use data about brain injury from a variety of uh, areas, both across state agencies uh, and, and other places, to improve um, access to services. So we're not actually a direct service provider. I know you've also talked to the Brain Injury Association of Virginia. There, uh, uh, we contract with them to do the outreach and the resource facilitation. We're kind of the behind the scenes people, trying to make sure that capacity for uh, services for folks with brain injury um, uh, get, get expanded and, and enhanced. I will mention that the, account, the brain injury unit is advised by a council that's appointed by um, the DARS commissioner, Kathy Hayfield. Uh, it includes representatives of other state agencies and, and related nonprofits. That council meets quarterly, reviews our progress on uh, federal grants, develops a state plan focusing on brain injury, and communicates priorities uh, from the public, kind of funnels those up to the commissioner and then ultimately to DARS. One other thing that I just wanted to mention, if, if this is okay, a lot of people don't know that Virginia has always been a leader in brain injury. Um, for example, Virginia was the first state to develop a brain injury state registry in legislation, and that started in 1984. So if someone goes into an emergency room, um, then the state collects data on uh, the, any possible brain injuries, and then we're able to outreach to those folks through the Brain Injury Association of Virginia to let them know about services that are available. We were one of the first states in 1986 to establish a brain, state brain injury advisory board that still exists today. Uh, we were one of the first states to designate a lead agency, as I mentioned, that's DARS. That was in 1992 when the General Assembly um, made that designation. And Virginia is home to one of the longest standing um, traumatic brain injury model systems programs, which really focus on long-term research um, about the outcomes related to folks with brain injury, uh, and that's based at uh, VCU. So Virginia has a lot to be proud of uh, in the area of brain injury services. Not saying we don't have a lot of room still to grow, but we've got a nice foundation in place. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I mean, that's, I think, more than I ever imagined that was going on in Virginia and probably a lot of people, which makes me even more grateful that you are on today. 
so that all of our <laughs> listeners can learn more about the great work you guys are yeah. doing. So Chris, you've already touched on this a little bit, um, but we did want to ask you um, what specific services are available for people living with uh, brain injuries? And again, this kind of goes off what you were talking about before, but we just wanted to ask you about um, some of the more specific services that might be available. Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. Because that's you're right. That's exactly what we want people to know about what's available in my community. Um, if I have a brain injury, or after I sustain one, or if I have a family member that that has one. Um, so, because right now there are over 2,000 people with brain injury served through Virginia's nine state-funded um, uh, community-based service providers. The core services include case management, clubhouse and day support programs resource coordination, and personal assistance. So case management is in every one of the areas in which we have services, and um, that's that's similar to the uh, case management and other systems. Case managers are there to help you identify what your needs and wants are, and then help you connect to those services and make sure they continue to meet, to, to meet, your, to meet your needs. Um, clubhouse programs across Virginia, this is another place where um, we were, we are a leader. Virginia is a leader in this area. Um, the mental health community uh, has always had a strong clubhouse program that is really um, member driven. Um, it's a, we're based on what's called a work day uh, schedule. And that is that you come to the program specifically um, to run the business of the clubhouse. There are different units, there's communications, there's uh, a kitchen, um, there's a maintenance unit and, and members do the work that's done each day um, and build a community in which they can, they can support each other. Uh, day support programs have more of an education and a social uh, aspect to them, um, but they're, they're just as valuable. So um, Virginia has five clubhouse programs. Uh, we have more, I think, than any other state right now. Um, and Virginia's clubhouse directors are among the leaders nationally uh, in the clubhouse movement for people with brain injury. Resource coordination is what the Brain Injury Association of Virginia does. Um, so they do outreach statewide to try to keep that message out there that if you have a brain injury, um, then services are uh, available to you. You can call their 1-800 number and um, they will help you to hook up with the services in your community. A very small program that we have is personal assistance services. Um, and, and that is for folks with brain injury who don't qualify for Medicaid so that they can get in-home personal um, assistance program. We, we have a bit of a waiting list for that service um, uh, because it is, it is so small and the funding associated is, but it's, it's a really, really important program. So many of the programs also provide additional services that are not funded by the state, and that includes assistance with employment. Um, some provide uh, housing support, education, support groups for both people with brain injuries and their caregivers, transportation, and mental health counseling. We also make sure that all our programs are linked tightly with DARS vocational rehab services uh, so that folks who are interested in can um, uh, either find employment or return to employment. Such, such an important thing. Absolutely. And I mean, one of the things that sounds great about this is like you said, you know, people want to know what's available in their community, but it sounds like you're really building communities as well and building these support systems for people. 
Oh, I love that you said that. I love that. And I think that's true. When you go to any one of the areas where we have programs, you'll see a real a real community. And if you ever get a chance to visit a day support program or a clubhouse, and I, you know, I know in, in today's environment in, in COVID, we don't always get to do that. But mm-hmm. I highly recommend um, that. Um, and, and even if you do a podcast or, or something with some of those programs, you will get that sense even more than I can I can convey. Um, it's so it's so true. Yeah, I know we've got some advocates here who've been to those clubhouses and only have good <laughs> things to say. So, <laughs> you know, we can we can already see the positive impact. It's a lot of fun to go visit. Well, so let's talk about we've talked about the services that are available. So tell me more, what are the critical issues facing people living with brain injury and their families? Okay. Well, you know, and we just talked about the services that are available and that Virginia is is doing a lot. Um, But there are still one of the critical issues is that there's still gaps in services. Um, Not all areas of the state have access to those services that I just mentioned. There is a portion of the southern uh, the central southern portion of the state that does not have access to any services. Uh, there's a small couple of counties, I think, on the eastern end of the state and uh, Rappahannock County that's up in the north central portion. Um, and so they don't have any services right now. So we got to continue. We've got to continue to work on that. There can be a waiting list for services in some areas, especially for um, case management and the clubhouse programs. And to me, what's really important, too, is like many people with disabilities, uh, brain injury survivors often have limited income or physical issues that that limit their access to those those core things that we all value. And that's employment, housing, transportation, social opportunities, health care. These are things that many of us consider and take for granted as basic everyday needs. And, And those are some of the really critical issues for folks. Uh, with with brain injury. Brain injuries can result in behavioral changes, and for those with extreme challenges in this area, there are few, if any, supports in the state. So we we do have some folks who have had to leave Virginia uh, to get services when they have the major behavioral um, challenges, and that's tough for them, uh, and it's definitely tough for their families because it's hard to, to stay connected. That leads to me one of the other important issues Uh, for brain injury survivors, and again, true in the disability community as a whole, and that family caregivers, um, uh, however you want to choose to define family, that that family that you build around you, they are a huge part of the support system for brain injury survivors. Uh, It's November, so that means it's National Caregiver Awareness Month. Uh, Shout out to the caregivers. And more needs to be done to acknowledge and support these folks. I also want to say, finally, one of the things that I've learned since joining the DARS brain injury uh, team is that brain injury often is uh, perceived in terms of the the injury, that moment in time when the injury occurs. But really, it's what happens after that. Brain injury is um, a chronic a chronic situation that may require lifelong supports, and we need to keep building awareness of that. Related to that, it's also an it can be an invisible condition. Um, I've heard from so many brain injury survivors that uh, people will say, "Well, what do you mean you have a, a disability or, or a challenge or need an accommodation? You look just fine." 
Um, imagine having something that impacts your life that much and have someone say, well, I don't get it because you look just fine. And you're like, but I know I have problems with short-term memory or, or these kinds of things. So uh, we need to, we need to over, help overcome that dismissing people's symptoms just because they don't show up on the outside to others. And those are, yeah, those are such great points. You know, the invisible disability where, you know, you have to deal with knowing that, you know, you know, you have some issues and not everybody else can see it. And I love that you're bringing up National Caregiver Awareness Month because I think <laughs> that is such a difficult job and it can be so emotionally taxing and family caregivers, like you said, however you define family are so important and deserve that, that recognition. You know, it's interesting for a long time, I, I have tried to be a champion of caregivers just in terms of the issue. And then just a little over a year ago, um, I became uh, a long distance caregiver uh, for, for my parents. And that's when it really brought home to me, oh my gosh, I have been telling people about this because I believed in it, uh, but now I know it in a whole different way. And uh, that, that definitely changes your perspective. Oh, absolutely. And I would think even as a long distance caregiver, some of it's a 24 seven job where you're, even if you're not there, you're thinking about it. Yes. Oh, I, that's a great way. A great point to make. Even when you're, if you're not there, you are thinking about it. And when Especially the phone rings late in the night, you're like, oh no, what now? Yeah. Go ahead, Molly. Well, I was just going to say, especially if it's a family member or a close friend or loved one. I mean, of course it's a, you know, 24 seven job, because even if you're not there, you're, um, you know, concerned about them or worried or, you know, wondering if they're, you know, getting, you know, the services they need, they need, but also like the socialization. I really feel like COVID has brought that to the forefront of how much we really just miss being in the presence of our loved ones. And I imagine for people with injuries, that's, you know, something that they've dealt with from the beginning, but has now been compounded given the time that we're living in. Um, oh, yeah. Great point, Molly. It just ex exacerbates the social isolation. And as they're learning more and more about the health impacts of social isolation, the health impacts of social isolation, um, that's, that's, that's really important, people. We all, we all want to feel, uh, you know, connections to people and that we have value to give to the community, um, no matter who you are. Yes, for sure. Um, so that kind of leads into um, what we kind of touched on a little bit. Our next question, which is how specifically um, has COVID affected these services for people um, living with brain injury? <laughs> that is that is funny how that was a nice transition right there. <laughs> um, and to summarize what we were just talking about in one way, also, I've always maintained we're more alike than we are different. You know, we all have the same stressors, the fears, um, the need to want to connect to people. And, and that's true of people with brain injury um, as well. Um, and also what's true is uh, it has been really, really encouraging to me to see that the way that brain injury service providers um, have stepped up just like all the other uh, folks in the disability community, community during, um, during COVID. Our clubhouses and our day support programs um, had to become virtual in a really, really quick turnaround. Um, and then as soon as they became virtual and started providing their services online um, through uh, different kinds of um, electronic meetings, Facebook, all kinds of different ways. 
they immediately started planning on, okay, how and when are we going to be able to open? And most of them are operating now in a hybrid world where some people connect just virtually. Some people actually come in and, and are on, on, on site. And they have done a phenomenal um, job with that. Case managers, again, they've gotten creative. They're using phone. They're using text. They're using email. Uh, they're standing in people's yards. Uh, we have a... Um, uh, some great photos of some folks at the uh, on the eastern shore who have been connecting with people um, through through windows. And uh, one of our case managers on the yeah, I say ours one of the case managers on the eastern shore um, was able to get into um, uh, a nursing home to provide some uh, technology to someone there to help him connect. By uh, the nursing home said, you know what, your technical assistance, you're a vendor, come on in and let's and let's get this let's get this set up. So uh, they are using all of those creative skills uh, to find ways to to connect with people. Uh, the brain injury uh, service provider community also developed their own assessment tool uh, based on what they know about the needs of their folks and 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 use that to determine who is at the most critical risk, both medically in terms of that social isolation that we were just talking about. Um, they did over 2,500 needs assessments in the first few months after COVID began, so that they could know who they needed to prioritize and and how they could they could give out how they could help folks. They gave out almost 3,000. Uh, packages that included PPE and other supplies for folks, uh, they just immediately mobilized um, because we were saying earlier, it's a, it's a community. It's not a program. It's a, it's a community. Um, and each one of them knew and knows the people in their community, and they're all reaching out to um, each other. One of the really neat things is when they did start to um, reopen, uh, the the providers' descriptions of people being able to see each other in person after a long time, or just seeing people virtually, um, that was that that warmed their hearts. And again, it's one of those places where isn't it true for us too? You know, it, it, there's no it, there is no us or them in this. Who doesn't feel that way? Um, so I'm really proud of the work that they've that they've done uh, during COVID. Yeah, it's like you said everyone has had to adapt to this in their own way. And it sounds like all of the service providers, you know, in your, in, in the brain injury services really started working immediately to adapt their services and to make sure people were still getting what they needed. And like we said, that they still had that sense of community, even, even though you, you know, there's physical isolation that hopefully you can create, like, you know, minimize the emotional and social isolation of it. Yes, absolutely. Particularly too, I think if your injury impacts like your physical mobility or not being able to go from place to place, I think we've really seen how technology has really helped people step up and, and um, like Suzanne said, have the same or similar social interactions even if we are not physically together, we can feel like we're together. We can still look at each other and um, feel that emotional connection, even if physically you you may feel stuck or you may feel far apart from each other. I, I yeah, I, I love what you guys are saying because I mean we have to find some silver linings in this, and isn't that one of them that we've realized that maybe we were stuck in some traditional ways, um, and this is going to open doors, especially for people with disabilities, just to say hey. Uh, yeah, we're, we, we can participate because we know now that this works. 
Exactly. Where it's almost like a training run, really, for what we can do when all of this is over. We can say, well, this worked. We know that it works. So let's keep doing it. <laughs> Look out, world. We learned what worked. <laughs> so you have been so kind to tell us all about your work and everything, all the great work you do and all the great work you support. So obviously, this is a podcast run by Disability Law Center of Virginia. So how can we here at DLCV support your work? Well, you all already do. Um, you have a representative on uh, Virginia's Brain Injury Council, and that's Elizabeth Horn, a long-term advocate on behalf of folks with brain injury. In fact, she used to be the executive director of the Brain Injury Association um, of Virginia. But I also feel that, that you all um, support our work every day because I think we share a lot of values um, in terms of making sure people have fair and equal access to housing, employment, transportation, health care, live in the most appropriate and integrated environment and are a few free from abuse and neglect and that their voices are heard as the best advocates. So um, keep doing the work that, that you're doing, please, um, and let us know how we can um, support that, how we can uh, build the self-advocacy uh, movement among people with brain injury, um, how we can bring them into this work as well would be the, the, the one thing that, that I would champion. But I, I hope that we're already partners in this work. I like to think so. And yeah. <laughs> I'll take a minute too to just say how much I adore Elizabeth Horn because I like to do that whenever I can. Like you said, one of our long-term advocates you know, who has worked with brain injury for years and years and years and is one of our social security experts as well. And we adore her. And we're so glad that she has helped bring us all together. <laughs> yes, we're so well, privileged. And that's why... Go ahead, Molly. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, um, it's such a privilege to know Elizabeth and to work with her. Um, and we really admire the work that she does. Well, and that's why uh, Brain Injury Association of Virginia, uh, she was one of their recognized um, uh, advocates this year, definitely well-deserved. That's true. Sorry, I, ha I have to plug Elizabeth whenever I get a chance. <laughs> I, can't, I can't help myself. <laughs> but yes, I like to, yeah, I agree with you that we, we do, I think we do share a lot of the same values. So I'm glad that we're able to come together when we can and, you know, direct people when we can to your services. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, so, Chris, just lastly, um, for those that may be listening or who may be familiar with um, DARS or DLCV, how can um, other people outside of these organizations get connected to your services or learn more about what you do or pass your information along? Yeah, definitely. And, and you're right. We're kind, of, we're kind of hidden and tucked in within DARS. So um, you can reach us toll free at one 800 552 5019, um, and then we can help um, with whatever issue, get you connected to the right resources that will help you uh, with whatever challenge you're facing. And you can reach us online at www.vadars.org forward slash CBS forward slash BISCIS. And I know that's a lot, so feel free to just Google DARS Brain Injury Services, and then and then you'll get to us. Um, but we would we would love to 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 hear from you um, and get you connected. Fantastic. Well, is there anything that we missed? Any you know 
Anything that you want to highlight that we weren't able to cover today? Um, no, no. I just really enjoy the opportunity to talk uh, a little bit more about what's happening in Virginia around um, survivors of brain injury. We are so grateful that you came on today. Thank you so much. And now a DLCV highlight. In the fiscal year 2020, DLCV utilized a multifaceted approach to improve the accessibility of substance use disorder treatment services for Virginians with disabilities. This included reviewing Medicaid managed care contracts to assess behavioral health, service coverage options, training public and private treatment providers across the state about their obligations under the Americans with Disabilities Act, and surveying individual treatment locations for physical accessibility. Thanks to GLCP's efforts, two large providers have already completed renovations to improve accessibility of their treatment locations. If you have a disability and believe a substance use disorder treatment program or other medical provider is failing to provide you with a reasonable accommodation, please contact us at 1-800-552-3962. So that was our interview with Chris Miller from the Brain Injury Services Coordination Unit at DARS. And she was fabulous. I think she gave everybody so much good information and really shed a light on, really shone a light on all of the brain injury services that are available in the state of Virginia. Yes, absolutely. And especially given everything going on right now with COVID, I feel like every guest we've had has really just um, shed a new light on the importance of everything and has really just shown everybody how to be adaptable during this, these times and how we can all stay connected and how everybody can get the right resources. I feel like in times like these, everybody's looking um, to get as much information and resources as they can. And Chris gave everybody some great starting points. Absolutely. And she also gave us some great ideas for future podcasts. So we have made her an honorary member of the podcast team, whether yes. she likes it or not. <laughs> yep. She's stuck with us. All right. Thank you all for listening to this episode of Rights Here, Rights Now, brought to you by the Disability Law Center of Virginia. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review. If you need assistance or want more information about DLCV and what we do, visit us online at dlcv.org. And you can follow us on Twitter at DisabilityLawVA and share us with your friends. Until next time, I'm Suzanne Herbst. And I'm Molly Carter. And this has been Rights Here, Rights Now. Rights Here, Rights Now.